The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Let us open our Bibles to Romans chapter 7 and see Paul vindicate the law and exonerate it from any misunderstanding of things he has said leading up to this seventh chapter and to defend himself from any slander that any would accuse him of regarding the law of God. The law of God are all the commandments, testimonies, statutes, and precepts that the Lord has given, especially those given under the Old Testament. We can summarize them by two, love of God and love of neighbor. We can summarize them by ten, as found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. I want to read to you verses 7 through 13, and we shall seek the understanding of the Lord for these verses. Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. And by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Amen and amen. Paul's purpose is to prove that the law's design from God was to make sin exceeding sinful. We don't want to look for some other purpose for this chapter. He's going to do it by the design of the law in verses 7 through 13. Then he's going to do it by Paul's own experience with the law in verses 14 through 23. Then he'll summarize at the end in two verses. The errors that are made in this chapter are pitiful, and there are many. Those who believe that Christians can obtain perfection in this life teach that Romans 7 is describing Paul's condition before regeneration. But Paul's describing his present condition. The other way that this passage is abused is to use it as an excuse for living a carnal Christian life. It doesn't really matter that I sin because that puts me in good company. I'm like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. Let me let me try to clear that up very quickly. Romans 7 does not disagree with Romans 6 or Romans 8. And if you take that position on 7, you are contradicting the two chapters that sandwich Romans 7. Romans 6 began with these words. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue in sin because Romans 7 is coming up? God forbid. 
How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So the sixth chapter tells us that Romans 7 is not a license nor any comfort for sin. That is not its purpose. Its purpose is to exonerate the law of God as being a good, holy, just, and spiritual gift from God to men and telling us its purpose lest there be misunderstanding because of some of the things Paul has said. If we go to Romans chapter 8, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who try to walk after the Spirit, but always end up in the flesh. That's Romans 7 being abused. The very next verse, Romans 8, 1, says, Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has power. And the power of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ causes those to be truly in Christ to be new creatures. Behold, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul has said some things about the law that would be disconcerting to those that adored the law, the Jews and Gentile proselytes. Look at chapter 3. Very quickly, let's remind ourselves what Paul has said about the law. And in every chapter except one, he has mentioned the law, and he has mentioned it in a way that we want, that it can't justify that having it doesn't prove a thing unless you're keeping it, and so forth. Let me give you two examples. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In these two verses, Paul tells us that the law of Moses shuts everybody up, doesn't justify any of them, and all it does is reveal sin. And he goes on. Now to a Jew, that law was sacred. They wore it. They kissed it. They memorized it. They knew it was a great gift from God to them. They could think of Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. It was given by the disposition of angels who brought it. Chapter 5 and verse 20 is similar. Romans 5.20 Moreover, the law entered 2,500 years after creation from Mount Sinai, Moses brought down the law of God for Israel. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. No justification. The law here is said to, to have entered, to have been brought into religious use, to cause our offenses to abound. So if there's more sins rather than fewer sins. Now, if you'd heard that, and then you had read the first six verses of chapter 7, especially verses 5 and 6. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. If you're listening casually, or if you are already prejudiced toward the law and for the law, you would understand Romans 7.5 to be saying that the law causes sin and death. 
Verse 6. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And if you had a propensity to love the law, you would say, What's he, why is he calling it the old letter? And why is he calling it being dead? And that it held us. The law was a wonderful thing God gave us. So to combat any misunderstanding, in verse 7 of Romans 7, through verse 24, he is going to explain that the law is a good thing. That is the purpose. Its design being sent from God was good. He's going to explain it by its design. He's going to explain it by his experience. He's going to explain it by the conviction it brings. He is going to explain it by the consciousness that a man can have who is born again, that the law is good, but he sees in his flesh something that is constantly warring against that law in his mind that God gave him from his law. That's the purpose. We do not want to be guilty of using Romans 7 as an excuse to comfort us when we live casually in sin. It was not written for that purpose. 6 and 8 prove that. And if you once you read Romans 7, fairly and honestly, it proves that. What shall we say then? Because of the things that I've said, what are you going to question me about regarding the law? What are you going to say to me about the law? Romans 7 is not describing an impossible conflict for Christians to live spiritually successful lives. It's describing a conflict that you have in your flesh, a principle that will not allow you to live perfectly and that hates something good, holy, just, and spiritual. And hearing the commandments that are good, holy, just, and spiritual, it provokes that sin nature in us to actually grate against it and work against it, wanting to sin even more. You know, we often have said, I I believe many have said, that if you tell a child, you can do anything you want in the kitchen while I'm gone, but don't get in the cookie jar. You know, you might as well have put a neon sign on it saying, come to me. It's like the Pied Piper is over there piping. Why is that so? It's because the law is holy, good, just, and spiritual. And we have something inside us that in the presence of something good, we want to break it. If I'm told not to do that, then it must be really good. And I want to do it. Just like thou shalt not, thou of the very tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of this tree thou mayest not eat of it from the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Though an enormous penalty is attached, though God gives every other tree, what was the most fascinating tree in the garden? That tree. Paul's going to lift up the law so high as a holy thing from God, but it's going to show how unholy we are. Let's go. We do not need much time for these verses. It is that simple. What shall we say then? Because of these things that I've said to you about the law, you may ask this question. Is the law sin? Is that gift that God gave our nation of the Ten Commandments and all the other little commandments that roll up to those ten? I'm not talking about the ceremonial law. I'm talking about the moral law because Paul's going to tell us what kind of law he's talking about when he gives an example in the seventh verse, Thou shalt not covet. 
he is not talking about the form of worship under the Old Testament directly. He's talking about the moral commandments that are to govern our lives. Is that is it a bad thing? Are you going to ask me, is the law bad? Is the law sin? God forbid. That is not what I'm teaching. That is not what I mean. Nay, that is not right thinking. I had not known sin, but by the law. Contrary to the law being sinful, it was only by the law that Paul could find out he was sinful. I wouldn't have known how bad I was without the law, because the law is good. It's because the law is good, and I break it, that shows that I'm bad. Is the law bad? No, I'm bad. Is the law sin? No, I'm sinful. That's the lesson. He's defending himself, and he's exalting the law of God just like Psalm 19 did for us. Just like Psalm 119 did for us, just like 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 that tells us about it being more sure than God's voice from heaven. God's word is wonderful in both testaments. But being wonderful, I define it as holy, just, good, and spiritual. Those are the four adjectives used by the apostle to describe the Old Testament law of Moses. Holy, just, good, and spiritual. But those four things, guess what they do to you and me? When we're in the presence of commandments that are holy, just, good, and spiritual, we want to break them. Because we are vile. We are wicked. We are profane. We are bad. We are natural. We are carnal. It's going to be the lesson throughout the chapter. Here's what happens. When you read the book of Romans... Because you don't adore the law of Moses the way the Jews did, though we should be well on the road to the way they did. We just don't want to wear it and kiss it and do the things they did to it. We want to read it and understand it, know which parts apply to us and keep them. That's the important thing about the law is obeying it. But because we don't have this half of our congregation or three-quarters of our congregation still thinking that there might be some justifying grace in keeping the law, we tend to wonder, what's Romans 7 talking about? But in the days of the apostles, there were many Jewish legalists who believed there was justifying power in the law, that it contributed toward salvation, that it contributed toward sanctification, That you could make yourself holy by keeping the law. All the law does is show the opposite of that. So that we need a Savior. You know, Galatians would put it, we need a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. This is the schoolmaster. And it's a good schoolmaster. A holy schoolmaster. A just schoolmaster. A spiritual schoolmaster. And it drives us to Christ because we find, by its design and by our experience... That we have something inside of us that rejects it and revolts against it and doesn't want to keep it. So we need a Savior. And that's why he ends up with, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I mentally know that the law is holy, just, good, and spiritual. I know that. I know it's a good thing. But I find inside of me something that hates that law. 
And while I will admit that it's good, and while I know that it's good, and while I want to do it's good, I find a principle inside of me that doesn't allow me to do that perfectly. I am condemned. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Last verse. And then it's Romans 7. And it goes right immediately to say, There is therefore now no condemnation. That condemnation that I just described by something good that God made that shows how bad I am, there is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. We are able to walk after the Spirit and not the flesh. We will never be able to do it perfectly, but we can certainly do it successfully. We can certainly do it in a way that pleases God, and we can confess every time that the law in our members defeats the law of our mind. We're in verse 7. Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. It's not that the law was sin. I'm sinful. And he's going to explain that by repeating himself several times as we make our way to verse 13. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Of the Ten Commandments, the tenth is, Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. You shouldn't covet his na- your neighbor's house. You shouldn't cover your neighbor's manservant. I don't think we've got too many of them around anymore. But if he owns his own business, you shouldn't covet his business. Thou shalt not covet. So, in the definition of the word covet, which means to desire something that you don't have, the apostle came to an understanding when that came to him. He said that there was a time in his life where he didn't grasp that concept. He didn't get that commandment. And see, there are times we've heard the Bible over and over and over. And sometimes we will hear a portion of Scripture that we have heard many times, but it will come to us differently. Because God the Holy Spirit is arresting you and convicting you. And those are precious times. When you don't have those times, it is a time to be fearful for your soul. You want to beg God to convict you. We want to come into our services praying for Him to convict us. We want Him to fill us with conviction. We want to shake and tremble before God's Word. We want to despise the things that we do that are contrary to Scripture. And so it came to Paul. I wouldn't have known about lusting except the commandment, the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. Pharisees, which were the most conservative denomination of the Jews' religion, had taken the law of God and shrunk it down to where they could justify themselves by Moses' law. Since there was a seventh commandment that said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, they had shrunk the law down to the overt act. If they didn't commit adultery, overtly, actually, literally, with an actual woman in bed, then they could be guiltless before the law and that seventh commandment. Forgetting the tenth commandment that said even desiring your neighbor's wife was sin in God's sight. They had done this. Paul was the son of a Pharisee, and Paul was a Pharisee. And that's the way he thought on God's law. But that holy commandment came, thou shalt not covet. The Lord Jesus Christ dealt with this issue, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, Jesus taught, 
And I want you to understand that Jesus did not come to change the law or to overthrow the law. They thought so because he came and overthrew their false interpretation of the law. In Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. Not one jot or one tittle is going to pass from this law until all be fulfilled. And anyone that teaches you that you can break even the least of these commandments is least in the kingdom of heaven. But those that teach and do the least commandments are greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus taught. And a few verses later in 27 he said, Ye have heard by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. And what he is doing in Matthew 5.27 is taking up the Pharisees' interpretation of that commandment. You have been taught that you shouldn't commit adultery. And so stay out of your neighbor's bed. Verse 28. But I say unto you, I want to take that commandment that God gave and bring it back out to the breath God intended for it. But I say unto you, whosoever looketh on another woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now, now look at what's happened there. And this is why we hear the Bible. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we want the Bible preached to us. Because it is so easy for us to sit in our little glass towers, our little glass houses and say, well, I've never committed adultery. Well, if you've ever thought about committing it, or you've ever wanted to commit it, but you lack the opportunity, you're just as guilty before God. And that's Matthew 5, 27. Then Jesus goes on to pick the Pharisees apart a little bit more. If you're using my divorce laws to get rid of a wife that you're tired of, to get yourself another wife, you're guilty of adultery. And we could say to each other that there's more things than that that would make us guilty of adultery. You women that like, I hope there's none here. But I'll say it anyway. You women that like to read romance novels. Why are you reading romance novels? Are they all about marriage? Now, if they're about marriage, then what I'm about to say doesn't count necessarily. But on this particular point, it doesn't count. If you're reading a romance knowledge that promotes adultery even though it may be presented in the most glowing terms and really stirs your embers, you're sinning against God and you're committing adultery by taking pleasure in adultery. Romans one thirty two, Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but take pleasure in them that do them. If you have friends that are adulterers and adulteresses that have not repented, then you are guilty of adultery by association. If you read romance novels or watch movies that promote adultery, I use Braveheart as my favorite example, such a stirring movie, but it's a movie that continually throughout promotes fornication and adultery. You want William Wallace to commit adultery by the end of that movie with the Princess of Wales. When you do that, you are committing adultery by proxy. You're committing adultery by association. And so all, all that I'm saying right now is... That the law of God, when it says, thou shalt not commit adultery, when it says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, is exceeding broad. And we want to get it out as wide as God intended it. We don't want to make it wider than God intended, but we don't want it narrower than God intended. And the Apostle Paul thought he was safe until he understood the commandment, thou shalt not covet. The purpose of preaching 
is to show Israel their sins. Isaiah 58 and verse 1, Isaiah describes his ministry this way from the Lord, as the Lord gave him a ministry. I'll read it to you. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. That is the purpose of preaching. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, The weapons of our warfare, my ministry, is spiritual to the pulling down of strongholds and the casting down of imaginations and every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is what preaching is. It's supposed to be a man faithful to God's Word, bringing God's Word against your thoughts. In Paul's case, he needed someone to explain to him, Thou shalt not covet. And maybe he needed to hear Proverbs 24 and verse 9, that the thought of foolishness is sin. That the inner thought of doing something wrong is sin in the sight of God. There is a holy God in heaven. We shall all give an account of our lives to him. And one of the accounts that we shall give is about our thoughts. And if we have desired sin but lacked the opportunity, if we have desired sin but justified ourselves that we actually didn't go through with it, we're guilty. Paul was guilty. Look at the 8th verse. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, the commandment thou shalt not covet, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. When I heard the commandment and understood it, thou shalt not covet. You can't, you should not desire something that someone else has that God hasn't given you to the place where it would cause you to be discontent or you would consider a sinful means of obtaining it. You know, we see things that others have and we admire them. I mean, if anybody in here wants to get a 300, a Chrysler 300C SRT8, I will admire it. I'll ask you to pop the hood because I want to see the new Hemi coming out of Detroit. But that's not lusting because I'm still going to be content with my Jeep that's failing in many joints. It's fulfilling Ecclesiastes 12, though it's not a person. I'm not going to be thinking of how can I get your 300C away from you and into my garage. I'm just going to look at it and admire it. But when we pass admire, you know, we go into someone's house and we say, you know what, hey wife, I like the layout of this house. That's admiring it. But when we pass that to be discontent with what God's given us, we have passed a line that is telling God He is insufficient for us and what He's given us is insufficient for us. Covetousness is terrible. Covetousness is idolatry. That's what the Bible says about it. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Covetousness is idolatry because you've made something more important than God. You are no longer content with God because you need this thing. You are no longer content with God's providence because you don't like the things He's given you and you want something else. It's a horrible sin. And we have the Word of God to tell us that it's that horrible. That's the law of God in both Testaments. The Apostle Paul understood that commandment. And when he understood it, he realized that all the sexual fantasies that he had had were wrong. Now, do you hear me? This is the Bible. This is not the, this is not the main purpose of Romans 7 to preach about thou shalt not covet. 
But this is the commandment that Paul used to illustrate the point. And if you're lusting after things that you don't have, and it's making you discontent with your life and frustrated in your relationship with God, or you're actually thinking about getting some of those pleasures unlawfully, you're guilty of covetousness. You know, the Bible tells us the Lord should be enough. Let your conversation be without covetousness, Hebrews 13.5. And be content with such things as ye have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Amen. Is that a wonderful text? Right. See, I like the way the Bible tells us exactly what contentment is. It's to be content with the things that we have because we've got God. Right. Wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Does it also tell us that godliness with contentment is great gain? Yes, it tells us it's great gain. Do you know what that commandment does to your flesh? It makes you want to covet something that you don't have. Because when you read a statement in Scripture that godliness with contentment is great gain, do you know what it does to your flesh? It provokes your flesh to want to violate it. Is that sick? What's sick? You're sick. I'm sick. We're twisted. We're perverse. We're profane. We're evil. We're bad. The law is holy, good, just, and spiritual. Is it, is it, is it a wonderful statement? Godliness with contentment is great gain? Amen. That is a wonderful statement. Why does that irritate us in the flesh? Because we are sick and perverse. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Concupiscence is eager or vehement desire, especially libidinous desire, sexual appetite, and lust. Wow! You say, Paul wrote that about himself? Yes. Paul wrote that in his flesh, when he understood, thou shalt not covet, you should not be desiring another woman that you're not married to, you shouldn't be desiring another man you're not married to, it wrought in him all those evil thoughts. It exposed those evil thoughts. Now he says wrought. The law did not make Paul sinful. The law just showed him that he had those sinful thoughts. The law went to work as a bright light on Paul's heart that was full of foolish and wicked fantasies. Oh, brethren, this is why we should come into the house of God and we should come praying, prepared, participating, and passionate about God's Word. Because this is what it's for. It's to remind us, and right now I'm using it a little bit off on a little trail about guarding our thoughts. You know, most churches today have moved away from sound doctrine just as the Bible said they would to fables and entertainment, to scratch the itching lusts of their ears. Because just preaching sound doctrine is boring. They don't want to endure it. Preaching sound doctrine steps on toes and tells them what they're thinking about in the privacy of their bedroom or while they're driving or wherever they are in the office place is wrong. But that's what we need to do, preach the Word. And so it wrought all manner. Of sexual fantasies in Paul. Now, here, here goes someone again. Oh, I've got Romans 7, 8. <coughs> I've got Romans 7, 8. I have a real problem with sexual fantasies. Often. Every day. Can't stop them. Just can't get over them. Whoa. Thankfully, Paul's just like me. Wrong. 
Paul ain't like you. First Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, but I keep under my body. I am not like a boxer that beats the air and misses hitting his opponent. I'm not like a runner that is not tempered in all things. I am tempered in all things, including my thoughts. I know that there is in my members a desire for those thoughts, but I put them down and keep under my body. He doesn't keep under his body perfectly, as the rest of this chapter will describe, but he keeps under his body victoriously. Because he confesses that when he fails, because he still has an intent to do what is holy and right. God knows our frame, but he does not allow us to just give up the fight. It wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Okay, Paul, you, so far you're, you're almost making it sound like the law causes sin. He's going to explain it. The last sentence of verse 8, For without the law, sin was dead. When I did not understand the law, sin was dead in my life. I felt myself alive, happy, confident before God. Sin was dead. The law was, the law had made, for without the law, sin was dead. When he didn't understand the commandment, thou shalt not covet, he thought it was a pretty good Joe. I can stand before God. I haven't committed adultery. You know, if I feel good. Haven't you read the Pharisees? They all felt good. They thought they were blameless. For I was alive without the law once. That period of time where I did not understand the commandment and I had not fully comprehended the law, Paul had the law from birth. He was a son of a Pharisee, and he was a Pharisee. He had the law physically. He heard it read audibly, but he didn't have it in his understanding. And when he didn't understand it, Sin was dead. That means there was no sin in his life as far as he was concerned. And he was alive. He could stand before God. I'm ready. So it sounds like Job, doesn't it? Lord, come on down here and let's have a little chat so that I can defend myself and we can get rid of these problems in my life. Paul thought he was that way. And that's what these words mean. Without the law, sin was dead. I didn't have any. For I was alive without the law once. He's describing his attitude towards sin. He didn't have any, and he had confidence before God. Verse 9, the middle of it, But when the commandment came, not in print, but when the commandment came to his understanding, when he understood, thou shalt not covet, sin revived, and I died. All of a sudden, sin came to life. I realized, I've sinned. It says, thou shalt not covet. I've been coveting every day. This is Paul speaking to himself. Sin revived. All of a sudden, Paul had sin in his life, and he died. He no longer had confidence to stand before God. He knew that he was condemned as a sinner. The explanation is that the law wrought this by showing Paul's sinfulness. I died. Sin revived. The law wasn't corrupt. The law was good. And he'll explain. Verse 10, And the commandment, which was ordained to life... I found to be unto death. The Old Testament law was given under this statement. Do and live. The man that doeth them shall live by them. If a man could keep the law, he could go to heaven. It was ordained to life. I set before you this day life and death. 
practically and legally. If you can keep my commandments. The New Testament reaffirms this in several places. Paul reaffirms it right here. The commandment was ordained to life. I found it to be unto death. He is exonerating the law. God gave this wonderful thing called the law as a means of life. I don't want to blame it for causing death, but it was death to me because of my sin. I found to be unto death. God gave it with good intentions. God gave it with great value. What God gave was good, but it didn't work with me because I found sin. Sin revived, I died. Though it was ordained to life, it just showed me condemned. So he's exonerating the law, and he's condemning himself. Verse 11, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, his fantasies, his desires, his libidinous desires, his sexual thoughts, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. I thought I was fine. But then the commandment came, and I saw, Thou shalt not covet. And and I had sins before that, and I had sins after that. My flesh continued on warring against that commandment, Thou shalt not covet, and deceived me and slew me. It slew him in his understanding. It slew him in his conscience. He became convicted that he was a sinner and worthy of death before God. He could no longer stand before God because the law gave an occasion for him to understand that his thoughts were wrong, sinful in the sight of God. Verse 12, wherefore, now this is important, wherefore is drawing a conclusion. And if you'll keep some of these verses in mind, you'll know exactly what Romans 7 is talking about. The question that began Romans 7, 7, is the law sin? Is the law sin? God forbid. Wherefore, after his explanation of verses 7 through 11, wherefore the law is holy. And the commandment, the specific commandment, thou shalt not covet, is holy and just and good. For God to have a commandment that tells us not to covet is a wonderful commandment. It's holy and it exposed Paul's concupiscence. For the Bible to warn us that our thoughts are wicked is holy. Because covetousness is idolatry. So the commandment, thou shalt not covet, is warning us against idolatry. Like Psalm 19 told us that there's warning in God's commandments. Covetousness is discontentment with God and what He's given us. That's a wonderful commandment He's given. Thou shalt not covet. It's holy in that It warns us that by coveting something we don't have, we are not content with a holy God. And we are not content with that holy God's providence of the things He's given us in our lives. The commandment is just. There's every aspect of fairness in God prohibiting us lusting after things He's not given us. There's a very strong principle of fairness. When we speak legally of a law, we want that law to be fair. We want that law to be just. And this law is just because it staves off what comes from covetousness. And what comes from covetousness? Discontentment 
So the Lord is teaching us how to be at peace by not coveting. How to be content and happy with what you have. Happiness is a choice. It's not a set of circumstances. And if we're covetous, it's going to lead us to evil thoughts of envy against those who have something we don't have. So it's a good commandment. It's a holy commandment. It's a just commandment. It'll lead us to steal. It'll lead us to commit adultery with another man's wife or with another woman's husband. It'll lead us to those horrible consequences, all starting with coveting. So Paul said, the law is holy. The law is not sin. The law is not bad. The law is holy. And the commandment is holy and just and good. This is Paul's declaration. This is why he's writing. This is why we have Romans 7. This is why. Verse 12 starts out with the word wherefore. He's drawing a conclusion from these verses so far. You ask me and you say to me, because of the things I wrote in chapter 3 and chapter 5, is the law sin? Are you putting down the law of Moses, Paul? No, I'm putting the law of Moses up. But I'm putting the law of Moses up where it belongs and it shows me a sinner. I need a Savior. That's Romans 7. Fits right in perfectly with 6 and 8. The law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. And just to meditate on that verse about the commandment thou shalt not covet is of great spiritual value. If you would just think about all the benefits and how the commandment don't covet, don't desire things that are not yours to where they frustrate you with discontentment or they cause you to think of unlawful ways of getting those things. Think about it. That's that's a holy commandment keeping us back from idolatry. It's a just commandment by teaching us contentment with what we've got. What if all of society was content with what they had? Would that be a pretty just world to live in? Amen. Would, there be pe- would there be governments trying to steal something that doesn't belong to them? People trying to steal what doesn't belong to them? Would it be a good way to live? And so Paul's just lifting the law up where it belongs. And you should love the commandment, thou shalt not covet. Verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. The law is not the source of death, though it is incidentally, though it is indirectly. The source of death is my sinfulness. It's all the concupiscence that I had within me that when I saw the holy, just, and good commandment and understood it, thou shalt not covet, I realized all the concupiscence in me. God forbid. The good law was not made death, but sin, but sin. It is sin. And Paul's whole message is against sin. Romans 6, 1 was, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. And my description of the law is we need to be delivered from its condemnation because we are sinners. The wages of sin is death. And so he says here, but sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, meaning the commandment. The commandment, thou shalt not covet, is a good commandment. It's a just commandment. It's a holy commandment. It's a spiritual commandment. But that commandment showed me what I had inside me. I had sin in me that leads to death. That sin, by the commandment, might become exceeding sinful. 
God's use of the law is part of our religion. And we use that law, and we need to humble ourselves before that law, because we will give account of ourselves to where we have broken that law when we stand before God. And it is that law that drives us to Christ in a proper way. There is no evidence of eternal life in a person who has not realized before God that they are a sinner under God's law, and they have fled for Je- to Jesus Christ for refuge, to hide themselves from the wrath of God that they know they fully deserve. Anything short of that, you're not in line with the Apostle Paul. We want to come before the Word of God and have it convict us and condemn us. We want to say and mean it with Paul. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? From the body of this death. I understand the commandment. And I have inside of me. Desires against the commandment. Even though I know the law is good. Even though I know it's ordained to life. Even though it's just. And it's holy. I sin against it. In my flesh. I need a savior. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And so then he goes on into Romans chapter 8 having defended himself, that he had lifted the law up where it belongs and where it still belongs. Those commandments that are brought forward into the New Testament, and nine of them are brought forward, the commandment about the Sabbath was left right where it belongs. It was a special sign gift of God to Israel. The other nine are brought forward, and they're all repeated in the New Testament. They are still ours. And we better humble ourselves before them, and we better have them explained to us from time to time, lest we sin against them. My brethren... When we come into the house of God, we don't come to be entertained. Right. When we come into the house of God, we want a faithful man to tell us God's word without compromising it or varnishing the truth and lay out God's commandments to us and to convict us and to condemn us wherever we are doing something wrong. And we better pray for that, and we better prepare for that, and we better participate for that, and we better be passionate about that, and we better beg God for conviction when we come into the house of God. I'm sorry that this aspect of our religion may be more boring than some of the churches in our area that are growing so rapidly because they entertain their hearers. And they don't bring the Word of God to bear. Do you remember a series of messages I preached a number of years ago called Forgotten Sins? How many times are these sins preached against today? Answering again, backbiting, banquetings, chambering, clamor, debate, despiteful, effeminate, emulation, evil surmising, foolish talking, froward, gainsaying, gluttony, heady, high-minded, incontinent, implacable, Jesting, malignity, necromancy, prating, prognostication, purloining, reveling, self-love, surfeiting, whispering. That's a sample from a sermon series. Do you know what? Those are all things that God hates. And His commandment is holy and just and good and spiritual. And when we come up against those commandments, they shine a light upon us and they find us sinners. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment that is good, wrought 
all sorts of evil in us and shows us that we need to change to be converted into God and that we need a Savior to save us from the consequences of our sins. My brethren, do you know your condition and contrariness to God's holy law? Do you know it? If you don't know it, then what value is a Savior to you? Do you know God's law exposes your wickedness? Do you know that without a Savior, you're lost? You're going to stand before Him, and when He gives the commandment, you are going to understand it. And you are going to understand it in its breath. And it is going to condemn you. Have you fled to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness and safety? Run to Him by faith. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. He'll always have mercy. Only a regenerate man cries it. But a regenerate man in the preaching of the gospel had better cry it. Or on what basis is he regenerate? Do you appreciate God's law for ongoing conviction? Do you love to hear it? Do you love to read it? Did that little list of uh, sins get you a little interested that maybe you should go home and print off forgotten sins and take a little look at that outline? Let us humble ourselves before him. Though Paul had said, we're not under the dominion of the law, we're under grace. What did he mean by that? He meant that we are no longer under a religious system that leaves us hopeless and condemned. Because under the law only, we are hopeless and condemned. But we have the Lord Jesus Christ because we're in the New Testament. That's, that old schoolmaster was a good schoolmaster. A holy and a just schoolmaster. It drives us to Christ. This is what's being taught right here in Romans 7. Paul is defending the law, and he's defending himself, that the law is a good thing, was a good thing, is a good thing. It endures forever. There's nothing corrupt in it. It's just that it exposes our sinfulness, and we need a Savior, and we have one. We have a Savior that the Bible tells us, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Jesus Christ kept all the commandments perfectly for us. Does that sound good to you? That's the good news of the gospel. The Bible says, honor thy father and thy mother. I have done many things in my life to dishonor my father and my mother. But I'm thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ was subject to Joseph and Mary according to Luke chapter 2, and I have that righteousness clothing me in the sight of God. I still love the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, because God attached a great reward to it, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. There is more benefit in picking up the phone and calling your parents for three minutes and telling them you love them by getting alternative medicine treatment for a year or by going to GNC and buying a year's worth of vitamins. Pick up the phone. All that's in the Bible. Because His commandments are holy, just, good, and spiritual. They expose us and they drive us to a Savior. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord.